In the name of God who creates, redeems, and sanctifies. Amen. Amen. Please sit. I am not going to talk about the epistle this morning, but I just want to acknowledge that as Jean read it, I regretted that decision. <laughs> because it's such a great text, and Paul is on such a I mean, just imagine saying to someone, if you think you're good, I'm better. It's amazing. He says some good things in there, but I have too much to say about the gospel, so I'm not doing it, but well done, ma'am. That was very good. Every once in a while, for me, a smell can carry me away. And I imagine you know exactly what I'm saying, but I'm going to give you a few examples. One of the strongest for me is sage and celery and onion and butter on Thanksgiving morning, the start of stuffing. Suddenly I'm seven years old again, dropping little cubes of bread in the saute pan with my father. Or the smell of the ocean at the end of the day, right, when the seaweed and the fish starts to come in. Not when it's all in, right, that starts to get a little gross, but when it's just coming in and the tide's just rolling in, suddenly I'm a kid having ice cream on the beach with my parents again, and I'm salty and I'm sunburned, and I remember not just the day, but I remember the feeling, right? Another one for me is the chlorine. Anytime I smell chlorine, I'm suddenly, well, I'm many ages, in a whole season of my life when I spent much more time in the water than I did on land, swimming, lap after lap after lap after lap. Rosemary and garlic reminds me of Christmas. Charcoal and grilling reminds me of summers in the woods in Pennsylvania. What are the smells for you? What smells instantly take you back? Are there perfumes that remind you of certain people? certain moments, surely you have many of them as well. And it's because our sense of smell is a very powerful thing. It's connected not just to our taste and our, our sense of food, but it takes us back to moments, to places, to people, to specific things very often that we don't have anymore, that we miss, and it's an instant reminder. It's vivid. In the gospel this morning, much is made out of something called nard. <laughs> and we're told that it's very costly. It was often preserved in alabaster boxes. It was a very expensive, very interesting sort of ointment. Very herbaceous smelling, probably. Sort of like the heavy perfume that maybe your grandparents wore, whether it was perfume or cologne. Anyone else have that experience where it was so heavy that it hung in the air even after they left? Maybe you couldn't get it off your cheek or off your clothing. <laughs> it would have been a lot like that. <laughs> and Mary breaks open this ointment. The whole house would have smelled like it. Not a little, but a lot. The air would have been absolutely filled with this heavy smell. Not necessarily a bad smell, but overpowering, overwhelming. The text tells us it's six days before the Passover, so Jesus knows what is about to happen to him. And before he goes to Jerusalem, he stops in Bethany to do something that I think probably any of us would do if we thought we were about to face something difficult. He goes to spend time with people he loves with people who love him. And he fills that time before this trial with 
good people and good food and good company and good memories that will sustain him, that will build him up for what's about to come. We know that he loves this family. This is not our first Mary, Martha, and Lazarus story. We hear about them several times. He knows them well. He's probably stayed with them quite a few times. He probably knows his way around the house, feels familiar, feels comfortable. And the text tells us that Lazarus is sitting at the table eating with the disciples. And if you consult some people who are smarter than I am, they'll tell you that maybe that's because they're trying to lump, John's trying to lump Lazarus in with some of the disciples to highlight their relationship, to suggest that Lazarus is a really important person in the movement. But what John is definitely trying to do is highlight for the reader, for us, that Lazarus is eating. And that may not seem like a big deal to us, but it it was a big deal at the time, because you'll remember that he's brought Lazarus back from the dead. And one of the key ways in the ancient world that people thought you could tell the difference between a ghost and a real person was whether they could eat, whether they could keep food down, whether they were corporeal enough to sit at the table and eat. So what John is really doing is proving to us that Lazarus was, in fact, raised from the dead, that Jesus did, in fact, perform this miracle. The text tells us that Martha is serving. We know she does that well. This is the same Martha who gets frustrated in another story, right, that she's doing all the work and her sister's not helping. And so, of course, when we find Mary, she's doing what she does best. Again, she's sitting at Jesus' feet, worshiping. Not helping in the kitchen, not doing what Martha's doing, worshiping. Mary, in the many interactions we see of her in Scripture, has always been exceedingly clear about who Jesus is. And she knows what her priorities are. When he is in the room, she's with him. That's it. Nothing else. She knows who he is. He knows who she is. And what passes between them because of this relationship is truly something special. So in the middle of this dinner, Mary interrupts everything, and she breaks open a pound of this very heavy perfume, and she anoints Jesus' feet, and she wipes his feet with her hair. Now, this might sound a little strange to us, right? And in some ways, it was a little strange to them, but a little less so, because it was a pretty reasonable custom to anoint the feet, to wash the feet, right? Jesus does that during Holy Week as well, of people that you love and admire, of people that you serve, of people that you wish to learn from. I mean, think about it in the ancient world, right? They're wearing sandals. It's hot. It's dusty. I'm going to let you imagine their feet. I'm not going to describe that for you. I trust that you all can do that for yourselves. But it was a, it was a pretty, pretty common thing to show your love and admiration in this way. So in that particular way, it was a little less strange for ancient eyes than for ours. But what would still have looked very strange to them was the sudden display of this intimate relationship between Mary and Jesus. I mean, think about this for a minute. Suddenly, the depth of Mary's love for him and the strength of their connection would have been on display for everyone at that dinner to see. And I want you to just imagine that scene for a minute. Imagine that you are sitting there at the table and something like this happens. You might have some questions. 
right? You might maybe feel a little awkward by this sudden powerful display of emotion, display of love. It might make you feel a little uneasy, like you're seeing something that maybe you shouldn't see. Particularly in the ancient world when she uses her hair to dry his feet, that's a, that's a big moment because hair for women at this point is still very hidden, very private, saved for your husband. So that was a crossing of a boundary there in a lot of ways. But Mary has saved this incredible gift for Jesus. And she offers it up without worrying about who's there to see it, what they will think, or how they will feel. She's apparently not all that interested in anyone else, and maybe perhaps a little too devoted even to realize that other people are in the room to even care. And then there's the smell of this stuff. This ointment was often used, as the text suggests, for embalming, for burial, so you can imagine that it needed to be very, very strong. And that is precisely what everyone in the house would have thought of when they smelled this. Every single person who was hemmed in and weighed down by this smell would have immediately thought of the last person they loved who had been buried. Or maybe they would have started to wonder about their own death. Every single person would have been reminded of the smell of death and all the complicated feelings that come with that for the people we love and for ourselves, whether it's fear or sadness or emptiness or loneliness or discomfort, whatever it is, all of those complicated feelings would have been brought up in that moment as this smell took over the whole house. The text actually, though, has something interesting to say about the nard that isn't in the English translation at all. In fact, it, it seems to skip over the word entirely, and I thought I was wrong about that, so I went and asked a whole bunch of people who are smarter than me. In the Greek, there are two words that describe the ointment. One is in our translation. It means very expensive. Literally, it means of great price, so costly. But the other word that's there is the root of the word pistis, which is the word for faith. And I'm not a Greek scholar by any stretch, but I consulted some other people who are. And it seems to them, and it seems to me, with my sort of elementary Greek reading, that the word is there to suggest that the ointment, the actual ointment, is faithful. Like if you called something trusty in English, like if you said, my trusty iron or my trusty hammer, you know, like it always does the job, you can rely on it, you can trust it. Trusty faithful. Perhaps the word is there to hint at the purity of the ointment. Perhaps it's there to talk about the strength of the fragrance. There could be lots of ways to interpret it, but the, the root of the word is faith, suggesting that the ointment, or the smell of it at least, and what Mary is doing with it, is faithful. And so to build on where we started, I'll ask you, are there smells that remind you of your faith and of your faith journey? I'll tell you, for me, there are lots of them. Um, one of them, yesterday for our quiet day, we, we lit some incense in here, and it, it was, it's frankincense incense, so that immediately reminds me of a lot of things. For me, too, anytime I'm in a damp basement, anyone know that smell? 
That reminds me of the undercroft at the church where I grew up. <laughs> and the smell of pine is the same kind of smell that's in our chrism at baptism, the oil that I put on babies' heads, literally the blessing of God. What can you think of? What reminds you of pieces of your journey, of the smell of faithfulness? That's the kind of thing this text, I think, is pointing at. The Greek's a little murky, but there's something that it wants to tell us about the ointment and about our faith, about the fact that we can interact with it in this way, that this act of devotion is so powerful for so many reasons and is faithful in large part because of how that smell interacts with everyone else in the house. Now, we're going to take a quick sidestep and look at Judas because I think it's important to put him in context, right? We have this exchange where Judas asks why Mary would do this. Why not just sell it and give the money to the poor? Jesus is, after all, always teaching about giving to the poor, about caring for the poor. In fact, the disciples, as they travel around, keep a common purse, meaning that there's no individual property in their little society. Nobody owns something themselves. Everything is held in common. And the common purse literally exists so that they can give money to the poor that they meet on the road. So it seems like a good question, right? But then the text very quickly tells us that his intention is not as good as it looks. And so the difference here, as we've traditionally understood this story, is about Judas's intention matched up against Mary's devotion. He's not probably particularly interested in giving to the poor. He's probably a lot of things other than interested in stealing, given that we know what he's about to do. I think it's fair to imagine that he's probably pretty confused, maybe feeling sort of bitter, maybe kind of angry that what he thought Jesus was going to do, he hasn't done, that things haven't worked out the way that he expected them to. Maybe that he feels like Jesus loves other people more than him. Maybe he's a little jealous at the end of the day that Mary can give something like this so freely, and he can't. He's just not able. There could be a million reasons. But what we always come back to in this story is Mary's intention, her devotion. And so maybe what we can learn from her today is twofold. There is something to admire and something to emulate in her devotion. This perfume is probably the most expensive thing she's ever had in her life. It's probably worth every penny she's ever going to see in her life combined. And she gives it freely to him. Not in exchange for anything. She doesn't get anything in return. This is not a give and get kind of interaction or transaction. She gives this thing because she loves him. The way that any of us want to give gifts to the people that we love. She gives it freely because she loves him. And in my mind, whenever I imagine this moment, I can see her joy and her delight at the fact that she can do this for him. Because on some level, I have to imagine that she kind of knows what's coming to she has always been clearer than anyone else about who he is and about what he's doing. And so I wonder, what is it that you bring to God? What gifts do you lay at Jesus' feet? What 
are you giving? What treasure within you do you give freely just because you love him? If the answer is, I don't, or I don't know how to do that, that's okay. It's never too late. A good place to start, actually, is in this season by being bowled over, even in this story, by being bowled over that the person that created the heavens and the earth and all that we see and all that we know loves you and wants to be in relationship with you. That's a good place to start. And then after that, I can help, this place can help. It's a journey that we all take together. But the giving of this gift and the devotion behind it is something that we can learn from by paying attention to our intentions and by wondering about what we are devoted to. I think we can learn, too, about the way that she gives this gift, that her faithfulness has an impact on others. Every single person around her can smell the faithfulness of this gift. And I'm willing to bet that every single time they smelled this for the rest of their lives, they thought of this moment. And that it wasn't just about death anymore. That it wasn't just about fear or sadness or loss, but that it was in fact about life and freedom and connection and relationship and Jesus. All of a sudden, she changed the context of this whole thing and turned it into something else that was about eternal life. Her gift has an effect on everyone else. The whole house was full of her devotion. They couldn't have missed it if they tried. And the best part is that she doesn't try to hide it. She doesn't try to hide herself. When she gives this gift, she is not worried about who sees it or how they feel about it. I want to be clear, I don't think she does this in order to be seen. I don't think that's present in the text or in the person that we think we know. She's not doing this to make a show or a scene. But she is equally uninterested in whether or not other people think it's the right thing. She is neither embarrassed or intimidated, nor is she willing to be made to feel awkward or ashamed about how much she loves him. And so I wonder... How have your gifts to God impacted or inspired or included or changed other people? In what ways can you learn to witness to Jesus and to your relationship with him without being afraid of what other people will think or see or say? How can our devotion change the world around us and make an impact? maybe even inspire others to know and love the Savior. Beloved, this is our last week of Lent. Next Sunday, we enter into the great journey of Holy Week, the holiest seven days of our year, the heart of our story, the heart of our faith. This is a great moment to find love and devotion within yourself and to offer it up. This is a great moment to draw more near to Jesus as he longs to draw more near to you. One thing we can learn from Mary is that it's important for us to be clear about who he is and to make him a priority on our journey, and particularly next week to take the journey with him to the cross, 
to let ourselves be moved to love the one who loves us more than we can ask or imagine. Here's the good news of this text. You don't have to break open a box of alabaster that's full of expensive perfume to wash his feet in order to say that you love him. You don't have to do something over the top to get his attention. You already have it. He already loves you just the way you are, already sees you, already wants to be with you, already gave his life for yours, and already wants to give you the fullness of life, the dreams that he's dreamed for you. You were quite literally, when you were made, in the foundations of the earth and knit together in your mother's womb, you were quite literally created for this relationship to receive his love and to give it back to know him and to be known by him. You were built for this. And you can't live your best, most fulfilled, happiest life without living into that part of your human nature, which was built to receive that love. And the only gift that this Savior wants is you, for you to do that for you to be in relationship, for you to choose him, for you to put him first, for you to try to be like Mary, who's not interested in what other people think or say because she knows who he is. The gift he wants is you, your mind, your gifts, your heart, to be first in your life. All he wants is your heart. Won't you lay that at his feet today? Amen.